everything I'm good at. I can also name someone who's written the book on it who's just better at it. But there was a moment in 2020 when I looked at this and what I actually understood was for that period and, and arguably still now, I was actually the world expert on the business fiber market in London. Now that's a real niche, but once I realized that, that gave me a lot of confidence to then say, yeah, actually, I don't need validation on this. I just need funding. That's Timothy Kresik, the CEO and founder of Vorbos. They're an internet service provider for businesses, which might not sound that interesting at first, but just wait till you hear the story of how it came together and what they're actually doing. Timothy saw a gaping opportunity that the market had missed due to the distractions caused by COVID, and he seized upon it. It's a story of how the right knowledge, combined with perseverance, can sometimes allow you to create your own luck. Thanks to Timothy's niche expertise in fibre optics, Vorbos was able to secure £250 million of investment. Their plan is to turn that into a billion by deploying the UK's only dedicated fibre network for businesses throughout central London. They've discreetly laid over 500 kilometres of fibre optics since 2020 without many people noticing, and that has been part of their master plan. There's a lot to learn from here. Timothy tells us about several business ventures, and all of them, even the lawn mowing business he founded at school, played a very clear role in setting him on the path to where he is today. Whilst I was out buying Skittles as a kid, Timothy was out hustling from when he first got pocket money. Living in Switzerland, like we, we, my brother and I never had any pocket money because there's no need because you wouldn't be able to, you would never go out on your own. There was nowhere to, to go. Um, and when we moved to the UK, that that sort of question came up, and um, and our parents didn't know what appropriate pocket money was, and they essentially decided the smallest possible amount was was appropriate in order that we didn't seem spoiled. My brother figured out how to work within those parameters. I felt extremely constrained and started devising ways to make money. You know, my parents probably felt like that backfired a bit because. In the end, I, I, as a teenager, I probably ended up making more money than, than anyone else at school. I think one of the characteristics that came out of that was like you very quickly stop caring what people think, right? So I think if, even from a young age, I, I just didn't care what people thought. And I've never really felt the need to, to justify myself to others, I think, as part of that. So, you know, I was doing very well. I had I had a couple of little business things on the side that were, were quite lucrative. I used that to kind of fuel my own interests and hobbies. And I suspect kids at school had no idea what I was up to. What um, incarnations did they take? Take us through some of the ideas and some of the executions. Were they successful? Were they not? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the first time, really the first thing and the first time I think I ever got paid by someone other than my parents, right? Like the first time I ever got earned money was uh, was mowing lawns. I basically had started mowing a handful of, of the neighbor's lawns in, in our neighborhood. It's funny when you look back, a lot of people probably then would have just gone, cool, I was just, I mow our lawn and I mow two other people's lawns and I make six quid a week and that's fine. There was something in me where I was like, aha, how many lawns can I mow? Like how, how you know, I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know what it is, but, but anyway, there I was. So off, off I went. Short story there is, is within a couple of years, I was mowing every lawn in the neighborhood. And in fact, the, the, the part of the story that always makes people laugh is that as an addressable market, it's quite fixed in terms of, you know, when you're a kid and you don't have access to a vehicle, how far you can push a lawnmower to get to your clients. So your, your addressable market is fixed, but, you know, your desire to, to make revenue is, is sort of uncapped. And I'd figured out that um, you could convince people that they needed their lawn mowing twice a week. And so this really doubled the market. And the fun part of that story, that the thing that got me onto it was when you think about how a blade of grass grows, the longer it is, the more of it is exposed to sunlight. And so it then proceeds to grow faster. So if you cut a short blade of grass, 
the clippings, you know, it, it's there's very little to cut, and it will take quite a while. It'll initially grow quite slowly, and so so it's this kind of fun thing, which is if you can mow someone's lawn twice a week, the total amount of clippings that you take away is substantially less than if you only mow it once a week. And so the amount of work you put in is way less, and you can get the job done way quicker. And because I ran a sort of fixed fee basis, it was three pounds a lawn, if you can believe it. You know, this was a really really uh, effective way of making money. Yeah, I was uh, every day after school coming home, doing a couple of lawns, then going and doing my homework. And that sort of then started to get me into software. Of course, naturally, naturally. How could a lawnmower not take you to software? To me, that seems obvious. Yeah, no. So so what happened was people just wouldn't pay. So you, they would build up months worth of debt, you know, and you'd be standing there and they, they you know, and you'd be like, well, you owe me 18 pounds now. <laughs> months worth of debt, 18 pounds. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely, you know, it's just it's so funny. And what I sort of, I don't remember sort of where this, how it came about, but I, I suppose I intuited that I should write this down. So, um Ultimately, uh, I just built a little bit of billing software in uh, Microsoft Basic. It was on, you know, on DOS, and I basically had, I had a system where I had all my lawnmowing customers in there, and it was really because I've been fiddling around with like starting to, to code. You need a project to do to kind of put it in context, and so my my project was let's build a system to print out bills for the lawnmowing, print out invoices. So I would get home from school, go turn on the computer, press a few keys, and it would run off the invoices for the lawns I was going to go mow. Then I would go off, mow the lawn, fold this up, stick it through the a box and, and wander off. And and the business lesson there was as soon as you put it in writing and as soon as it was printed and not sort of handwritten like a taxi receipt, people took it really seriously. And even though the numbers were was irrelevant and small, suddenly all my payments started coming in or almost all my payments started coming in on time. And this, this sort of debt issue I'd been dealing with almost uh, entirely went away. So where did your coding career take you? Then, then you get into this sort of slightly weird part where some of the people I mowed lawns for also needed IT support. So this kind of then made me understand there was a market for that. And then this was around 98, 99. And it's so funny when I think about it now, but I always used to find Christmas quite a stressful time. I'm quite introverted. I don't enjoy you know, when the whole family's there and uh, it's just a lot. And I decided I wanted to learn how to build web pages. And you know, I'd gone to Waterstones and with, with my earnings, I'd bought the 40 pounds book on on html and it was like one of those things where like i remember at the time it was like i coveted this thing because like that was a lot of lawns i had to mow to be able to buy this book and you know you really do think about the opportunity cost of like what else could i have done with the money and i spent christmas just reading the book learning to build websites and uh then from from there uh, that started to become that was the weird situation in the the late 90s was you could be you could be like a 16 year old who actually knew how to do it who knew how to build websites for, for small businesses and people would pay you a few hundred quid to do it now you can probably be a five-year-old with chat gpt but hey exactly so so that that kind of sent me sent me in that direction and and then um you know i had a few other things going on so around that time i i also had a i was trading sim free mobile phones um i'd sort of figured out that there was a bit of a loophole in in the way that was all working it was back in the days of the kind of car phone warehouse model where you couldn't get sim free phones you always had to have a contract i basically managed to make friends with a with a chap somewhere on the south coast about 100 miles away who owned an independent phone shop and so he could buy sim free phones and then i would buy them off him and then i would sell them through yahoo auctions which later got acquired by eBay. And I would predominantly be selling them to bankers in London who wanted to have the latest phone. And so they didn't care about the contract. That wasn't the issue. The issue was you know, they were happy to pay as long as they could get their hands on the phone. And so I had this like weird trade going where every time a new phone came out, bearing in mind I was like a 16-year-old like walking between lessons. And I would get a, I, you know, I'd get a call and it would be some banker in London being like, can you get me the latest 
Ericsson T39M or something. And it's like, yes, I can. And then they would send me checks and I'd deposit the check. And then, you know, because we didn't have like PayPal, we didn't have any of that stuff. So, and then I had that thing going on the side as well, which was, again, another like interesting lesson in understanding where there was a bit of arbitrage in the system and where there was a bit of a gap. There were people that were price insensitive that just wanted to have the latest thing and the market just didn't cater for that. It sounds to me like what you're learning is, you know, some of the actual really early crucial business lessons, invoicing, how to get people to pay on time, where arbitrage opportunities lie. So where is a space for you to make money? You know, you're actually inadvertently exploring different business models by just being curious, by just listening to the market, right? And just sort of toying. It doesn't necessarily sound like you're sitting like we sort of imagine sometimes with an entrepreneur with a grand master plan and a big whiteboard and all the different things you can do you're kind of sort of going with the flow and seeing where these ideas and lessons take you it definitely and i think that was always my thing was was you know I, I always smile when you get people that sort of say go build it or do it as a paper process do it by hand 100 times or you know get someone to pay you for it and it's like yeah 100% i agree with that you know that was if there was money in the bank like if if you were getting paid for it then then that was the that was the evidence that was the proof point that i needed so mm. it was always do a thing see if i can get paid for it like let's see if i can get paid to do whatever it might be and then derive from that what the lesson was i suppose i think because of the way the startup boom has essentially unfolded and because there's so many you know the internet has allowed an expression of so many different business models as well the idea of focusing back to the very core metric of business being something that is a service you provide that someone literally pays for, that's kind of been lost in the ether for quite some time. Like, you know, it's almost become a dirty word, a dirty idea that if I provide a service, you will pay for it. And that is essentially the sum of what entrepreneurship is. But in reality, if you look at the definition of entrepreneurship, it pretty much specifically, it specifically explains that it is providing a service that someone will pay you for that adds value to them. So if you can't find a way to do that, and there isn't actually money exchanged for it, you don't have a business. Fundamentally, at some point, you still have to be able to ask that question. Otherwise, there's a much better question to ask, which is, does my business need to exist? Absolutely. Now, it's one of the reasons why I've always really enjoyed B2B space, because I think B2B gives you a much more rational, pure sense of value. That's not to say, you know, I think it's a myth, and, and often I, I get into arguments internally here about is, well, they're, you know, they're, they're basically just consumers too. They're, they're prone to the same kind of tricks that work with marketing and advertising and everything else. It's like, well, kind of, but eventually like someone in procurement goes and checks it or someone, you know, they, there is still a bit more sophistication to a B2B buyer. In general, they are more likely to fire up a spreadsheet and actually figure out which one is the most cost effective. And I and I like that because it also means if the product's good and if you position it well, you can punch through with very little marketing as well. And that was the other thing that I found fascinating. So until the last three years, for context, I ran this business for... Uh, 15 years before before fundraising, and it was profitable. In those 15 years, we spent, and, I, and I'm not joking, absolutely zero on marketing. Like we went to the odd conference, and would obviously that that you know that would we would expense that, but we never ever did any marketing. Mm. And and in B2B, you can get away with that. I think in B2C, that's a very very difficult. There are, there are some examples, but it's pretty rare. So tell me, Tim, after all of this uh, messing around with uh, with different explorations and different business models, where did you land up? Where did you decide to hang your hat. I was the the kid that like didn't really try at school. All the teachers thought I was a bit of an idiot. And then I got the highest GS, uh, GCSE results in my school, very, you know, some of the highest uh, final results, A-level results as well. And, and all of a sudden that, you know, you kind of get a very different focus, a different attitude. So after my GCSE, suddenly the school zeroed in on me and was like, we want you to apply to Oxford, Oxford or Cambridge. So whether or not it was the right thing, um, that's where I ended up. 
and then I, I worked my way through university. So I was building software. I was always in the holidays, like going and doing work placements. You know, I've had so many weird jobs doing different things. Like when I was in, in high school, I, I was delivering rental cars for Avis. Um, every time I had a bit of spare time, that was just like one of those things where you could turn up, do a shift, make 50 quid and then move on. And, and again, taught me a lot of stuff, right? Because I've, I've stood in a, you know, in a scratchy Avis uniform on, on so many people's doorsteps holding a clipboard, delivering a hire car and, and just been like, just treated like a nobody. It's really valuable experience. I then, I then did all sorts of like internships generally in like the software space. And then, and I built a lot of software through university. I built like an e-commerce site for a, for a photography company. So they were doing like event photography and, and it was a, a way to go online and essentially order prints. All the stuff that now is like really easy to do, like the sort of Shopify straight off the shelf, have it up and running in an hour, was actually like really complicated. You know, like you were building the whole thing. You're having to do all the payments integration because you didn't have the payment services. You were having to do all of the back end. So you were doing everything from integrating with a credit card merchant account to doing the image resizing and the dispatch to the printers who by the way didn't have an api so you literally had a bit of back end that would like pull the resized files automate an email with an attachment and in the body of the email the instructions of like where to ship the print to and like just like kind of weird stuff i I did all of that i had a miserable time at oxford and it's it's a real paradox because i think i learned a lot almost every day there's things that you know are valuable but at the same time it, it didn't make me happy i did a lot of rowing competitively and that was kind of like my safe space and then ultimately i left after three years and i never graduated a key element of that was i'd had a summer job as a software contractor at a at a very large law firm and they were very forward thinking and were using software to essentially make the business more efficient you know they'd understood that if they could extract more billable hours that that was on a global scale with 3000 fee earners globally that was going to be that was going to be huge and that was a real eye opener for me so that was really the genesis of then what went on to, to be the uh, Vorboss and, and this business where does the name come from i have to ask yeah i get this a lot i'm afraid the answer is just really really engineering uh, i i'd wanted a, a name that was unique that you could look at and immediately pronounce it having been brought up in a non-english speaking country as well I, I sort of had this idea that it generally ought to be pronounceable to to so, sort of in any language and where the domains were all available the .com the .net .co.uk and where it wasn't really a, something that was in use so i spent a good chunk of 2005 wandering around with a bit of paper in my back pocket just writing down i'm sure you've done this like you write down ideas and then you cross them out and you write down other you and of course, I always love telling the story to some of the young people in the business now, you know, where they're 22 years old and can't imagine a world without the internet. And I was like, and then I would get home and I would Google them because I, you had no idea, right? You didn't have internet on the go then. So go get home, get this like scrap bit of paper out, Google this and go, oh no, that's a dry cleaners in Singapore, can't use it. Oh, I've done this. I've done this journey so many times. It's so tedious, isn't it? Um, and so, but the, the name was engineered to fit a specification. The specification was a short, pronounceable word, had to sound kind of reliable, not mean anything in any language and, and something that no one's ever used and eventually you try enough combinations of things you, you hit on it and um, I kind of wish I had some of the bits of paper I kind of wish uh, there was a there was a eureka moment with that one where and this was back when you could google I don't know if you ever if you remember this in sort of early 2000s but there were things you could google whether whether there would just be a blank page like now the algorithm doesn't let you do that There's, they always manage to bring some advertising or do something or whatever but but yeah I, was, I remember just googling that and it was just just nothing and you're like well that'll do and the cool thing is, like to this day, 
no one's ever used that word for anything else ever so if you google vorboss like the only stuff that comes up is is us mm. it's almost like a impressive thing you should be proud of and also extremely embarrassed and insulted <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. It's interesting because hearing you sort of share the the snapshot of a journey in a sentence or two, it doesn't make it sound like when you started off, you had a grand vision about where you're going to end up today, 15 years later. But educate us. Like, how did it start? Like, did you have a grand vision? I know you bootstrapped the company for a long period of time. Take us through your journey. That job I had at the law firm taught me a really valuable lesson. So you now kind of see all these lessons stacking up and like what that how I was starting to piece it piece it together and sort of figure out how to make capitalism work, right? Like I'd figured out how to get paid for stuff. I'd figured out the billing, like you said, I'd figured out the importance of the contractual agreements and, and whatever else. The key lesson I learned there, and, it, and it's embarrassing to admit, was it wasn't what my time was worth or what my time cost. It's what my work was worth to someone else. So I worked on a couple of projects. I mean, they paid me extraordinarily well, like really, really well. I mean, it was absurd for a, for a sort of 21-year-old, 20-year-old to be earning the kind of money I was earning. The key was the problems I was solving for that business were worth millions to them. you know. And they had some really interesting problems. Like, you know, you could do two, six weeks worth of software development and theoretically be saving them half a million, million pounds globally over the year. And that was a huge eye-opener to me, was the fact that they were broadly indifferent to what I cost because as long as I was solving 
these problems. You know, it was like they were getting like a ten to one minimum order of magnitude ROI on on the work. So that that was that was a huge moment for me. I think prior to that, I'd always agonized over my hourly rate. I'd always done you know all the software projects I did through university and and the thing you know it was always about quoting based on how many hours it would take me to build it, and then having to have an argument to justify why my hourly rate was I don't even remember what it was, but I don't know fifty quid an hour or twenty quid an hour or whatever it, it might have been. Yeah, that was game changing to basically sort of think well actually I could devise a software project for somebody whether it's building an e-commerce site or whatever and price it based on what it's worth to you as a product even if it's a totally bespoke product what's it worth to you as a product regardless of how much time it would take me to build it it's interesting do you think that there's a lesson there that you that you've learned that is like still really relevant now or do you think that sort of lesson has become so obvious and there's a, another lesson to extrapolate for people that are listening today and trying to work out how to price things and where value lies I think for a lot of people it is it is obvious for me at that point that was the missing piece right like i'd i'd learned all these other things i'd figured so many other things out and that was and that was the gap that was the bit that somehow in all of it i'd i'd missed i'd never really thought you know when i was buying lawns or building software or whatever like what's this worth to them you know i'd never thought mm-hmm. to differentially price lawn mowing based on the income of the person who was who was paying me if you see what i mean you know a, a lawyer is saving a hundred pounds an hour by by having someone else mow their lawn compared with someone who's retired Right. And and yeah. whether or not that's valid, it just hadn't even crossed my mind. And so I think there was a degree of like when that penny dropped of like, oh, shit. And that and that really led me down to the original business plan to build software. So to build like line of business software or like mini what we would now think of as like ERP, what is it, enterprise resource planning, or but, but software that you use to manage your core business. There's just a plethora of SaaS software now, but that wasn't a thing in 2006. Like just absolutely wasn't a thing. And the only businesses building software themselves were huge businesses, not, not sort of small or medium businesses. So my thesis was actually all the same really clever techniques we use to build software in these large companies this kind of middleware or whatever you want to call it, like would absolutely translate to small companies. But you also had to do a little bit of kind of management consulting almost to to help them understand what the problem was. But companies in the sort of 10 to 20 million revenue bracket absolutely would have very good ROI on this and weren't, and it wasn't a space that they were looking. And so that was my original kind of, I don't want to call it a business plan because it was certainly never written down. That was my thesis. Uh, you built a proposition, clearly. Um, you said you bootstrapped it. How many of you at the time of, of building this? So I started, uh, it was just me. Like Originally, the idea was I would I would build software and sell it. Um, and I started that literally from, from my old bedroom in my parents' house. Within about three months, I sort of realized that I, I needed a small office. So I, I kind of really stretched myself to, to having a tiny one-person one 120 square foot or whatever it was office just so I had this sense that I was actually going to a place of work and and also because it was kind of embarrassing when you would meet people at an event and sort of oh where are you based oh my parents house so there's been a theme throughout all of this which is like I always sort of almost deliberately financially distress myself for these things to work you also have to have the cost base to cover right like because that then gives you the hunger to be like i i need to do the thing that gets me paid yeah there's a bit of cart before the horse because i took on like this office rent that i had no way of paying and that really forced me to be like i need to get some some paying customers probably less than six months i had about six employees so i'd then i'd then suddenly taken on more work than i could really do and and that had sort of escalated quite quickly that was a total failure obviously the key moment I recall was probably nine months into that, being unable to make payroll. And uh, uh, we banked with, um, at the time, 
uh, Alliance and Leicester Commercial Bank, which was the old post office bank. So so they didn't really have branches. The branches were in post offices. And I'd done that because they were the only bank with no transaction fees. So that was like, you know, it was, it was a terrible banking decision. Uh, yeah, I, I remember going to a cash machine, taking cash out on my credit card, and then walking across the road to the post office and depositing the cash in the company account and then walking back to my desk and getting the checkbook out because paychecks were literally paychecks and signing a bunch of paychecks and handing them out. And that was a real like, oh fuck moment. Like I've do- I can do that once and now I have a load of credit card debt. I also have to service, service on top of everything else. So then I remember that was a real, that was an unpleasant time because because you also knew now the clock was ticking as to how you were going to make the next one. I've had to do that as well. I I was reading your notes before the call and I was like, I saw that and I was like, oh, I, I literally remember doing this myself. Very scary. Kind of like you said though, there is an interesting thing to be honest where you are the, the reality is so night and day of making something work as opposed to in a funded startup, you've got a lot of, you know, you've got millions in the bank and things cannot work for a long time it is a different perspective it's a different kind of thing you know i'm unique ish in the sense that i run uh, a bootstrap business kindling media make secret leaders and other podcasts and i run like you know a venture back pod- uh, company that had millions in the bank with uh, with silicon valley bank like you did over the weekend and they create very different stresses very different kind of scenarios You are always acutely aware in the bootstrapped company. You're always acutely aware of how real every single decision is. And and I guess the the question back to you is, you know, which... Which do you enjoy more? It's a great question. Um, you know, sort of reflecting on this with with Ruth, uh, our producer, before we were speaking. You know, the honest the honest truth is that um, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about this as well, but the high I feel today from banking, unbelievably, is because so much was at stake, uh, millions of other people's money. And a whole business that I'd, uh, you know, a lot of companies that are funded uh, stuck a, a a jet fuel under to go fast. The, the, it's fair to say that the highs and lows in a backed startup, a high growth startup, you know, which tends to be the type that's funded because that's just a function of speed, right? The money is to help you go faster. The highs and lows there are far, far more extreme. And therefore, emotionally, when you reflect on it, I think it feels much more rewarding. And it's because there's a lot more risk mitigation with bootstrapped. And there just is. There are some bets you make, but like a lot of them are great ideas that you just can't make the bets on. You just have to be patient. There is no real strategy other than patience in bootstrapped companies. So it's not the high and low journey at all. It's the, it's the calm and steady. My personality is much more geared towards the high risk, high reward, full gamut of emotions as a human being, seeing how it all unfolds. But for a lot of people, you know, I can totally understand like the bootstrapped side uh, is this is a very rewarding journey, isn't it? Because you really get out what you put in, but you do that at real increments. Yeah. And I think, you know, it certainly builds a lot of resilience. Like I'm very, very calm about potentially existential events, right? Because when you build a business over this period of time, you know, you face down these kinds of issues. And I think I think there is something about sort of earning your stripes doing that. For me, though, I, I also just somehow derive a bit of pleasure from bringing kind of order to chaos. But, you know, I live two to five years in, in the future in terms of that's how far I can play the sort of think ahead a bit like, you know, a bit like playing chess, how many moves ahead I can think. And and I sort of work with my mental model and I and I love that. And I think it's what makes me quite good at my job. So for me, it's actually quite fun as a mental exercise when when the whole board gets tipped, you know, when, when there's then some unforeseen, totally strange event, whether, you know, COVID for us was a time where it was it was awful, but it was also like genuinely like adrenaline exciting 
interesting for me because I'm like, I, you know, I got to spend time considering, so, you know, suddenly blowing up all of these assumptions and having to like really quickly recompute. And it was one of those, one of those opportunities to the people that could think the fastest were going to win. You know, they were going to survive. They were going to have the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and I love those moments where you can kind of take all of that experience and then really test it. It's similar to for my sins. I, I do a lot of motor racing and a lot of guys really hate the start of a race because it's chaotic. And it's literally my favorite thing. Like I, I, it's like a happy place because your, your job in that situation is to, you know, get through that first, those first few corners, that first lap in one piece, whilst there is just so much going on and it's really hard to take in. And it's a true test of your ability to be able to watch everything that's unfolding in front of you, very quickly make decisions that you're committed to, right? Like, and those decisions can be very expensive if you get them wrong. And it's, I get a huge rush out of it. I love it. The, the chaos is just this opportunity to test yourself. Even with the sailing, I, I used to, I, I had a bit of a bad habit of, of seeking out storms to go and sail in just because you, your friend and I used to, used to do that. If the weather was particularly bad, we'd go sailing because it was a test of your ability. What are some of the more challenging experiences you've had in your life where that has really been tested? You know, do they tend to manifest because you go and seek them out? Or have you experienced really tough moments in personal life or business that have really, really pushed you? I mean, I have, but I think it's a different kind of a different kind of stress, right? I think I'm very good at disassociating the kind of emotional response when it's when it is just a problem you can solve. Um, but I think that's very different to you know, I don't know if a, if a, you suddenly have a friend in need and it really is quite an emotional point. It's not a it's it's like the classic, you know, just telling someone how to solve their problem isn't isn't necessarily what they want in a time of need. It's not quite so so analytical all the time. You know, definitely going through my divorce, which was a, a very lengthy kind of four-year acrimonious process that was one where i derived very little pleasure from the strategy of it um if if that makes sense it was just miserable you know there were there were elements of that where you know my company was at risk and there are you know a whole bunch of things you can do to to kind of mitigate that and to and to sort of think about how do you how do you get out of this so that you come out the other side with a business still because that's also my income but but i also have employees and i was in a position where you know i wanted to keep my employees employed but that's not something you can then go into work and talk about so it was a particularly difficult time because you don't want to spook anyone right you don't want to go in and say hey this is happening and by the way i could lose the company that was a very very lonely time uh in, in my life there were a good few years there where the relationship with my parents wasn't wasn't good so um so yeah i i really had my own counsel around that time i'd started going to therapy my marriage was 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 really not um not a happy one and it got to a point where like I, I just literally avoided going home I would sometimes fabricate a need to stay in the office so that I could be there until until she'd fallen asleep so I wouldn't have to you know wouldn't wouldn't have to be at home and this went on for a really long time um, you know probably over well over a year or two and I'd kind of got to this point where I'd understood that we needed a divorce but it just seemed like insurmountable I told myself if I still feel this way in a year then it's definitely over and then I got to a point, well, after a year, probably now almost 18 months, where I was, I, I was now wandering around like with this conclusion of like, we're getting a divorce. And the best way to, to explain it is like, I, I always think of things in, in, it's very mathematical, it's like the mathematical training of the limit, feed in zero, feed in infinity, and see, see what happens. And, there's, and for me, it was really clear, which was like, we're together today. There is no way when I'm 60, we're still married. And in fact, there's no way when I'm 50, we're still married or 40 or whatever. And, and you're like... So it's, there is a point where this comes to an end. And, and so it was that I was like forcing myself to be rational about it. It's like, I can, I can look at you and understand there is no way we're together in a decade. So where's the point? And, and actually, if I know that, 
it needs to happen now. And then, and this I think is quite a common one, I just had no concept of the form of words. Like, how do you actually then go about it? And and so that was somewhat naively, that was what triggered me to go to therapy. I, I got so stressed about it and I was just like in a huge knot. But I remember even doing a call with my therapist before my first session uh, and I like collapsed after that call. The relief of having shared with somebody it was the first time I think I'd said the word divorce out loud because she'd said on this preliminary call, well, you know, what, why do you want therapy? And I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure I need a divorce and I just don't know what to do about it. And, and yeah, I was just like sitting on a park bench sobbing after that call because it was just the relief of having opened a little bit of a pressure relief valve. Well, thank you for sharing, by the way, because I appreciate most people would say, uh, no, this is a business podcast, bugger off. But for me, <laughs> I think it's so, you know, lives are intertwined. I'm interested here in, I guess, to bring it back to business, like what did you learn about communication as someone who runs a communications business fundamentally in, in some way? But what did you learn about communication uh, in this experience that you were able to take into business life, right? Because I guess what I'm hearing here is you suffered silently for a long time without really being able to express and understand each other. Yeah. And I think, you know, my, my personal point of growth that took a while to really understand was two things. One, one was I'm, I have a personality type where like I tend to always do all the work. I meet someone where they are, not meet them halfway. Um, it makes you a really good communicator. It makes you really good at selling. It makes you, you know, I, I'm generally quite uh, high on empathy, right? So it makes it very easy for me to think about how am I being received and 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 to to do that. But what it doesn't do is give anyone. You almost become like a social sort of chameleon, right? People always say that they found you very easy to speak to or found you very easy to deal with because they never had to do any work to have that interaction or that transaction with you. And part of that is that you know I learned there has to be a bit of attention. There have to be those awkward silences or those moments where you go, actually, that's that's upset me or that's not okay or I'd really prefer you hadn't said that in order that you help people discover where the boundaries are or what you know what you need so I, I had i didn't have that really in any of my personal relationships and it took years to start to bring that to just become almost just ever so slightly prickly in, in the right instances to to help people discover what i needed to get from it and a lot of my relationships simply failed you know i had friendships and and, and other relationships that just were never then able to survive because the other person wasn't willing to meet me part way so i think that's one of the one of the things i think the other big thing for me was around that time it's this like kind of concept of wanting to be uh wanting to just be one person through my divorce through the time prior you know i would never tell anyone that you know the stuff that would go on behind closed doors i during the divorce couldn't tell people at work really or at least i felt i couldn't tell them and i also had this idea that as a leader you just have to sort of be infallible people want a strong leader and of course people want a vulnerable leader they want a leader they can they can identify with i just had this revelation one day which was I didn't want to have to feel like I was a different person at work than I was at home or in my personal life. And it occurred to me that, you know, I, I own the company. If anyone got to just be themselves, it really ought to be me. You know, I, I had no excuse. There wasn't like a, oh, it's a bro culture and, you know, I have to be a certain way or whatever. And so I thought, given given that I have that extreme privilege, I really should I really should use it. And And I think for the business, culturally, that was a huge turning point. Because what I then realized was, I want to be myself at work. I want to be exactly the same person. But actually, there are three people here that I'm not comfortable being myself in front of. And so they had to go. And it was a very quick lesson of these are three people I don't trust. They, they don't want to work with and they're not a good cultural fit. It was as simple as that. You know, it's like I was able to change how I was. And guess what? That pretty much everybody else followed. That built an unbelievably strong foundation culturally for then what the business grew into in the years since. 
Yeah, what you've just said is an amazing reminder that uh, personal growth is something that happens at different times in people's lives. You know, with people around you, you often have to apologise for it. You have to apologise for the growth that you're experiencing because it will leave other people behind. Um, But obviously in your story, there's a great pivot that comes out of this, right? And turns you into quite a different business. So can you take me through that? The sort of super short version was, you know, we in 2007, we were building software. We were doing that as a, think of it like a software agency, like uh, outsourced development. Financial crisis, 2008-2009, around that time, we basically went you know, all the orders dried up. We stopped building software, but also because what we actually started doing was building a hosting business. You know, this is way, way pre AWS and, and Azure and, and um, GCP. We had this sort of this kernel of, of a, an infrastructure business that was actually quite profitable and, and didn't require, it wasn't, you know, the profitability wasn't linked to the hours you put in the labor, right? So we built, we built a hosting business that then as we got into the kind of early kind of London tech boom, the sort of um, Silicon Roundabout days, uh, if you if you recall, still no AWS, a real demand for these sorts of services. And we built a really nice, profitable private cloud business, essentially, where we were using, and the, one of the key things we did was we were using central London infrastructure. So we, we put hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of equipment into data centers in central London, and that allowed us to do some really cool things for the businesses that, that the customers that we had. And, and they were, you know, quite a few like funded tech startups were our customers. And it's one of the reasons I have such an affinity with that community. But obviously, the writing was always on the wall. And it was around this time. So, so around this sort of 2017 time that Amazon opened their first UK data center, I think, in 2017. And at that point, you know, really late, actually. And at that point, we knew that, that was going to be a race to the bottom between between the hyperscalers. And and I have this lovely story about there's a there's a fiber, very successful fiber company in the US Midwest that used to be a family run video rental store. And they basically realized Netflix was putting them out of business. And they realized, like, what's the one thing people are going to need if they're going to use Netflix? And they hedged their video rental business by starting to build a fiber network in their town. And I think it's just, I just love it because it's just like, it's so beautifully connected. It's like what Kodak should have done. And I think we were the same. Like, the irony is we, we were the same, just a bit less elegant. Like, we we had, we understood that everything was going to, you know, billions of dollars of advertising as we spent on cloud. And that was going to change the way people use connectivity. They were going to have way more demand on business connectivity. And business connectivity, business fiber is something that, that the hyperscalers will never be able to commoditize. So we, we basically figured out how to get into that business. Um, and we were doing 10% of our business was connectivity in, in 2017. By 2019, it was 90% of our business. And we grew the top line in that, in that time. So it was definitely the right bet. It was the regulatory change that, that enabled access to infrastructure where we were then just just in the in the perfect position and and then ultimately the timing of that plus covid meant that what was originally going to be a sort of 25 million pound project to build a smallish fiber network that was highly specialized became a winner takes all strategy and and raising 250 million during covid to go and build a, a, a network that spans the whole of london what's it like to go from bootstrapper to we're going to raise 250 million dollars to do this enormous big brained idea it's a really really different place to be it's worse than that because it's pounds as well yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's where that's where a little bit of my like slightly autistic mentality probably was a huge benefit because i was during covid i was living on my own in temporary accommodation because the flat I was renting before that was was, was flooded um, and I'd had to su- I'd had to move house on zero notice in the first week of lockdown so I was like living in this little tiny diorama studio flat 
in a tower in in Moorgate. It was the weirdest thing. Uh, nothing to do of an evening. And and I'm figuring out this smaller fundraise that we thought we were going to do. And what I've been doing at the time, so the thesis was that that there would be I don't know five to ten companies would would start building fiber like we are. So if, for context, eighty percent of businesses in London are connected using BT OpenReach. They might be dealing with any number of wholesalers, but the actual fiber, the cable they're using in the ground is actually owned by, by BT OpenReach. So they have, you know, whilst the regulator doesn't call it a monopoly, it is it is effectively, it looks an awful lot like a monopoly. So we thought, you know, a whole bunch of people would, would go and build just like us. And therefore, you know, it was going to be a very fragmented market. And, and so you don't build anything too 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 huge i've always enjoyed that sort of chess game of it of kind of tracking what everyone else is doing and by about may april may of 2020 i'd understood that on on my kind of board of everyone i thought who would build and should build you know i'd been able to check in with all of them and understand that they'd all abandoned their plans they were all just too busy dealing with covid too busy dealing with other things too busy whatever and and you're just sitting there going holy shit there is a winner takes all this is insane you know, we have a change in regulation that has conferred billions of pounds worth of value. When you think about the market for for business fiber, so people, you know, proper businesses that are paying more than say 300 quid a month, just under 70% of that entire UK market is in London, central London. So the, the amount of value concentrated in a small space with a regulatory change that every other civilized country did 10 years ago. So we know what it looks like, but now the demand on connectivity is 10 years later, it's way different, there's way more value in it. You know, the whole thing to me was just mind boggling that no one else understood this. And you just look at it, you spend 15 years at that point, looking at opportunities that go by a bit, as you said earlier, like sometimes not being able to piece together a plan fast enough or putting the team together or the funding together. And sometimes going, if we'd had 100k, we could have we could have smashed that and we could have been, you know, we could have been the next whatever. And then I'm just looking at this one going, this is this is the once in a lifetime opportunity. This just doesn't happen. And I just was like hellbent on I would do anything to get that funded. And then all I did was I spent, I don't know, a week putting together the most insanely detailed model to really understand it. Because part of it comes down to if you're going to build a network that covers the whole of London. So the starting point was, what does it look like if you now want to build all of London? You know, it's hundreds of kilometers of cable. And then you kind of back it out and you go, well, it would need to be built inside three years. That would mean that, you know, the peak build rate is you're going to have to have, you know, 500 employees and you're going to have to have 50 vehicles and you're going to have to have, you start really working it through. You're like, we're going to be spending, you know, 10,000 pounds a month on coffee and we're going to be spending this, you know, 200,000 pounds a year on uniform. And you don't, you do the whole thing. And at the end, you get this number out and, you know, it was just over 200 million. And you're like, cool, I guess that's what it's going to cost then. And it was just this like super hyper rational, well, uh, well, I guess we need to, you know, I remember like saying to one of the guys the following morning, it was like, you know, I've been up doing this to like, whatever, two in the morning and like, well, I guess we're going to need to raise 200 million. And they all just looked at me like I'm insane. We're just for context, we're a 20 person company doing about eight, 10 million in revenue at this point. And I'm going, yeah, we, we probably need to raise 200, but like we should probably make it 250 just to make sure. In fairness, I have to say, Tim, uh, that is a far more rational way I've heard of figuring out how much to raise in general anyway. So uh, a lot of times, uh, especially over the last 10 years, as you know, it's been very much finger in the air. Uh, what does the market want to give me? And I'll work it out that way. How, like who, who you go to for something like this? One of the problems, the biggest problem is what you don't do. I'm quite proud of the fact that I never produced an IM. So there was no deck um, as well. I'm a bit belligerent. So I think I think that was like, a, that for me, that was a victory. Uh, how many decks do you get sent that, you know, you shouldn't be sent or under NDA, right? Like you just know that as soon as you, as soon as you make a deck, the entire infrastructure investment community has got a copy of it by the end of the week. Part of the point was we were saying there's this enormous opportunity and everyone's missed it, partly because of COVID 
everyone's missed it. They're all distracted. So we actually only had two conversations. And even that was probably one too many, really, because because you don't want to signal what you're about to do. And for again, for context, we closed our fundraise in November 2020. We didn't do a press release. You know, everyone's ego normally is like, let's take a picture. Let's do a deal photo. Let's do a press release. We didn't do a press release. The market didn't know that we'd raised for about 18 months. We sent, we built our training academy. We hired and trained over 200 people. We sent them out into the field with almost no markings, with plain white vans. And we built a network under everybody's noses. It didn't occur to anyone in our industry that someone, you know, everyone's got such big egos that if you weren't shouting about what you were doing the assumption was you must be you must be tragic no one had a clue and that was that was a key part of it the way the transaction worked was that i uh, at that point i was what 36 i had no savings my divorce had cleaned me out i'd spent 100,000 pounds on legal fees you know, I was in rented accommodation. I'd not had a liquidity event in my life at this point. I had built quite a good business. Um, so it suited me quite well that, 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 you know, with those sums of money involved, the investor needs to own a majority. They need to own the business and then they inject the capital, right? So we sold them, you know, I sold them the, you know, the plan and the business. And, and so we agreed on, on the valuation going in of, of the existing asset that would be the, you know, the acorn that we were now going to grow. And then they injected the capital. And that's, that's a weird one because normally that, that would then sound like an earnout, but it's not really because, because, you know, the whole point was to go and execute this plan. So it's it's kind of a funny one. I'm still I'm still the CEO, but I'm I'm also an employee. So how, okay, interesting. Um, thank you for sharing with such candor because it is a really fascinating model. So, but it is kind of an earnout, right? As in, there's no reason why it's not an earnout. I suppose the difference between this earnout and other earnouts is is your idea and you're super motivated to make it work, as opposed to quite often you hear stories and earnouts where founder can't actually wait to get out and has been so well capitalized. There's not a lot of reason why they stay. Whereas you want to solve this problem. Am I missing something in between? No, that's absolutely right. I guess the point is like I'm, I'm you know I'm highly motivated I still have skin in the game we're on track to build a billion pound infrastructure business you know 250 sounds like a lot yeah it's a drop in the ocean for the kind of thing you're trying to do I, I totally understand but, that but in the world of infrastructure it's about as it's about the smallest ticket you can get um, that's the irony sure. right you know and if I say to you I can take 25 pounds and make 100 you're like yeah that's the sort of return I expect you know so it's not it's not insane when you sort of understand how, how that works so yeah, I mean, there's, there's huge incentives for, for, for us to, to go and deliver on that, to take that investment and turn it into uh, an enormous, enormous business. But yeah, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a slightly unusual structure when you think about the sort of typical startup like VC structure. 17 years into the journey, we sort of join you at both the end of your journey and the start, the middle is really interesting. So A, we'll have to check back on you. But B, I really want to know what is your insight? What is your advice for other entrepreneurs that are embarking on a big journey like this? You can't ask me that. That's the that because that, that that's the paradox, right? Because the advice is don't do it, right? I'm not being glib. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you struggle with this as well. I don't know if you if you have kids or or like I don't, but I would struggle to 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 counsel my children to take the path that I've taken. Really, I find that so interesting. Like I would love my daughter to be an entrepreneur because it's just the best and the worst. You know, like we said earlier, it's an amazing way to build resilience, and resilience is actually the most important thing you need to survive as an adult in in humanity i believe anyway because at some point at some point everyone experiences uh, extreme stress and extreme problems and whether or not that creates like a total meltdown in you usually is based on either a very lucky disposition anyway or apathy or you've got lots of experience in it and it's one of the better ways i think probably being in the military or a doctor is an even better way but it's probably the third best way i'm aware of um of building great resilience so i think i would encourage it 
I think being a farmer probably does it as well, right? But but I think um, <laughs> yeah. no, I think look, I, that notwithstanding, I think the trouble is bring it back to the question of like, is it worth it, right? And I think that the challenge is for every one of me, you know, I I sit here now in like an unbelievably fortunate position, right? Like I I have financially done very well. I have a successful business on any financial measure, this has been worth it, right? Like no matter how you want to sort of take an MPV or look at it over the period or whatever. The the challenge is for every one of me, there's 10 or more where it didn't work out, where they played all the same cards, they made the same moves and they were just unlucky. And I think that's where I struggle is like there was no guarantee of success from the outset. Now, over time, I've, I've sort of tempered that a little bit. And I now doing a few things like this podcast is one of the things that's done is, is made me remember things I'd totally forgotten about the roads we didn't go down, the number of things we tried that failed. And I and so I do have a slightly rosier view, which is that it's not so much that I'm one of the lucky ones, but I did manage to survive long enough to get lucky, if that makes sense. Like actually a lot of this was that, you know, if you and that's probably my advice to entrepreneurs is like if you can figure out survival and you're smart, eventually you will hit on the thing. The biggest problem is is the people that almost it's like the SVB thing, right? Like where there is a freak event that means that like for 24 hours you can't meet you can't pay the bills and that causes the whole house of cards to fall apart. If you can figure out how to survive those moments and you keep fighting at it and you keep sort of keep keep fighting for it, eventually luck will swing your way. But that's that's the for me the paradox is is it right up until it, it was worth it, it wasn't. Like right up until that moment where like I because I did a deal, I sold my I sold my business over DocuSign, you know, in the middle of COVID. Uh the weirdest experience, right? But like right up until I clicked that button. It wasn't worth it. And two quotes to close this out so poignantly. You remind me of the Seneca quote, which is, luck is preparedness meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very much what you were saying. And then the other thing that you were literally saying, but is a very well-known uh, you know, startup motto, which is timing the market versus time in the market. And your opportunity and success is based literally on time in the market and the ability to withstand the blows you paid attention to a really big moment and you went after it in a huge way and it created this big outcome. And you could just have been running the same business a couple of years later if you hadn't have taken that opportunity. So I do think it's really important as well for you to take a moment to appreciate your own instinct, right? That is a killer instinct as well. Well, there was, and there was one thing I'll add to that, which was at at that time, I I, I forget the book now, but one of them is, is, is this idea of like, what's the one thing you're a world expert on, right? And, and do, and then do that. And I always struggle with that because it's like I, I'm not the world expert. I'm I'm definitely the, the sort of su- sufficiently self-effacing that in everything I'm good at, I can also name someone who's written the book on it who's just better at it, right? Like, and 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 then I've tried to learn from them. But there was a moment in 2020 when I looked at this, and what I actually understood was for that period, and and arguably still now, I was actually the world expert on understanding the business fiber market in London. Now that's a real niche. But the more people I spoke to, the more I realized like I was genuinely the, the one person in the world who'd actually thought about this for hundreds of hours. Like I'd really thought about it. I'd researched it. I had maps. I had data pouring out of every just I had so much stuff and I'd gone so deep down that rabbit hole that f- certainly for that year, I was the world expert. Once I realized that, that gave me a lot of confidence to then say, yeah, actually, I don't need validation on this. I just need funding. Timothy Kresik. CEO and founder of Vorbos, one of the most truly honest and clearest thinkers I've ever interviewed. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. See you next time.